Amen. Thank you all for leading us in worship. I mean, when there's a song and you get to a verse about the resurrection, I am 100% guaranteed to start crying. And you know what? Almost every song has a verse about the resurrection, <laughs> which is good. There's a reason for that. That is our future hope. I'm so glad to be here with you all in Florida because there's this thing, and I don't know if you have heard of it, but it's called winter. And I don't think you are experiencing that right now. Um, it was very cold when I left Missouri, and it's going to be even colder. I'm going to fly home Sunday night into a snowstorm. So um, I was thinking, if I have time tomorrow, um, when we're finished, I might like try to see the beach, because I feel like if I'm in Florida, I should do that before I get buried by snow and sub-zero temperatures. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. Thank you all for coming and giving up your Friday night and your weekend. I feel like it's a big ask to do that. And it is hard as women sometimes to get away from the responsibilities of home or if you came fresh from work to sort of like disengage yourself. But I want to ask you to disengage yourself from your regular life. And we are going to talk this weekend about the gift of God's presence. And we're going to cover a lot of material. Specifically tonight, our session tonight is just going to be a little bit longer than the ones tomorrow. The ones tomorrow will be shorter. So don't get scared if you feel like, oh, where is she is really talking like a lot. Um, I'm going to shorten it a little tomorrow. But I have a lot to cover because I want to set the stage for the gift of God's presence as we see it in Scripture. We're going to break up our session tonight. We're actually going to cover the entire Old Testament. Do not get scared. I can talk really fast. We're going to cover the Old Testament, and then tomorrow we're going to come back and we're going to look at the life and ministry of Jesus, and then we're going to look at where we are in the story of redemption, like where we are right now, January 12th, right? 2024, where do we fit into the story of redemption? And how does the gift that God has promised to his people from the very beginning, how does that apply to us, and where does that meet us in our lives now? And before we get started, I want to give you a little bit of background about myself, because I do want you to know that when I talk about things like suffering or trials, I don't use those terms glibly or loosely. When I talk about suffering and trials, I want you to know that I come from a place where the Lord has called me to suffer in a lot of different ways. And so when I talk about going through hard times. I'm not saying that to you like when you're going through hard times. I mean, I know what it means to suffer, maybe not in the way that you have. All of our suffering is different, but I just want you to know that I really mean it, and I, and I really have come to understand that it is through suffering when God does some of his best work in our lives. I grew up in the church, so thankful to have Christian grandparents. Both sets were first-generation Christians, who came to faith as adults or children and then raised their children, my parents, to know Jesus, who then raised me and my siblings to know Jesus. I was saved at a young age, believed that I was a sinner, couldn't save myself, believed that I needed Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to save me from my sins. And thankfully the Lord just began drawing me to himself from a very young age. And as I grew up in the faith, I had what I like to call like awakenings to the gospel I, as I was old enough to understand different tenets of the faith. And I really loved Jesus. And I really thought that if I obeyed him and I was a good Christian girl, then my life was going to go really well. 
from a Christian perspective. That being, he would bless me with the things that I asked for, as long as I didn't want to be, like, rich or famous or anything like that. But if I just wanted, you know, get married and have kids and grow up and have, you know, like, the little white picket fence life, that that would be what God would give me. I was very blessed, if you want to use that word, to have a really golden childhood, a life without much suffering or pain. I'm very thankful for the life that the Lord has given me and for the family that he raised me in. And it wasn't until I graduated from college, I met my husband, we got married, I married a man in ministry, which I was a little iffy about. Um, He was working at a church in college ministry and working on his degree in seminary. We spent our first two years in my hometown, our first two years of marriage, and in those first two years of marriage, all I really wanted was to be a mom. I didn't have like career goals or aspirations. I just wanted to get married and have a kids, have a bunch of kids, like a bunch of kids, and raise them and just be happy. That was the like life that I wanted. And I thought that was a good thing to ask for. And it was a good thing to ask for. And I found out, however, at the very, very young age of 24, uh, a doctor looked me in the eye and said, Glenna, it is very unlikely that you will ever have children. And for someone who had built her life on the dream of just being a stay-at-home mom, and that was the thing, like that's all I wanted to do, that was really difficult for me to imagine what my future was going to be like. At 24, what is there for me in this life if I'm not going to be able to be a mom? The very week that the doctor told me that, and I mean the very week, my husband and I packed up our lives in Tennessee and moved to Missouri where he took a church as a lead pastor. So suddenly, two years married, just been diagnosed with infertility, 24 years old, my husband was 27, moved to a new state, new town, new church, and I was the pastor's wife. And I had just had the absolute wind knocked out of my sails. I was grieved, very grieved, and lonely, and didn't know anyone who couldn't have children. The word infertility felt like a, like a shameful diagnosis in some way, even though I knew it wasn't my fault. And I just began to feel very bitter about what the Lord was doing in my life. We walked into a church in Missouri where it looked very healthy from the outside. We came from a very healthy church background, very vibrant church, young church, very great, solid preaching, biblical We walked into a church that from the outside looked healthy, but once we got into it, once my husband accepted the pastorate, just went sideways from the very beginning. And let me tell you, there is nothing like church ministry to just beat you down. We thought, coming from this really healthy church background, that we would come into this church once we figured out what the problems were, and we would just fix it. And that's what you think when you're 24 and 27. And we went in, and I think we made it worse. And it actually got much worse. And I, just stepping back, looking at the timeline of my life, the first 12 years of our ministry were absolutely brutal. And for years and years, I struggled feeling lonely, isolated, like I had no friends, could not trust anyone, and did not know what to do with my life with this infertility label that I had. During some of the worst years of our ministry where we had just a lot of slander and betrayal in the church, some people really ran my husband's name into the ground, really hurt our reputation in the small town where we live, Um, the stress began to wake up in my body, some very strange symptoms. And I had trouble sleeping at night, I had digestive issues, I started having mysterious pain in my joints and especially in my spine. 
I had scaly rashes on my skin and my joints, and I had a lot of anxiety and panic attacks. I could not figure out what was wrong with me. I had dizzy spells. I couldn't think straight. I remember driving my car one day across the town just to go to the grocery store, and I felt like it wasn't safe for me to drive because I could not think. My reaction times were slow. I saw tons and tons of doctors. No one could tell me what was wrong with me. So I'm at this place in my life where I have these now compounding struggles. So I have layered trials. So at the bottom is this desire to have something that's good. It was not wrong to desire to be a mom. It was not wrong to grieve that loss. But I pursued it relentlessly. Everything I could do, all the research, all of the things, and I just figured I could not be happy until the Lord gave me a child. On top of that was my husband's pastorate job, which was just a train wreck, to be quite honest. Very stressful for both of us. We thought about quitting constantly. And then on top of that, all of a sudden my health starts to unravel. And I got to this place in my faith as someone who grew up loving the Lord and believing only that the Lord was good. I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at my circumstances and suddenly I'm thinking, I don't know who you are, Lord, because I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at her life over here and her life over here and her life over here and you've given her everything that I want and you have blessed her with everything that I want and you have blessed her with everything that I want. So if you can give her those things and you can do this for her and you can do this for her and you're not doing them for me, then you must not love me as much as you love them. And if your love isn't equal, then you must not be trustworthy. And if you're not trustworthy, then you must not be good. And in my grief and my struggle with understanding why God would not say yes to the good things that I prayed for and why he withheld things like healing from whatever was very painfully bothering me for so many years, I had to, I had to ask the question, do I even know who God is? And I had decided, if you just looked at my circumstances, he must not be good. In desperation, and thankfully I think because the Lord is just kind and good, he drew me to the one place where I knew I could find what I was looking for. In desperation, I opened my Bible one day, and I got out a notebook, and I got out a pen. And I wrote at the very first page, top of the page, Who are you, Lord? Because the picture that I had in my mind was crumbling under the pain of my circumstances. So I started in the book of Isaiah because I'd read Isaiah before. I wasn't a real big Bible studier. I mean, this is Confessions of a Pastor's Wife. I was not a good Bible reader. And I did know from something that my husband had preached that there was a section in the book of Isaiah. It's like in the chapter 40 and beyond, where you have all these big statements about God. He's talking about how he created everything, and they're really big, majestic statements about God's character. So I thought, okay, I'm going to start with the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to go through the whole book, and I'm going to write down every single thing that the text teaches me about who God is. Whatever it says, I'm going to write it down, because I don't know who he is anymore. So I started with Isaiah 1-1, and for the next six months, seven months, Everything the text said, I wrote it down. If it said he was holy, I wrote it down. If it said he was just, I wrote it down. If it said he was wrathful towards sin, I wrote it down. And I filled a notebook. And when I finished the book of Isaiah, I went to the Gospel of John. And I did the exact same thing for the next year. And then I moved to the book of Exodus. And then I went through all of the Psalms. And it took me a couple years to get through the Psalms. And then I realized one day, after a stack of spiral notebooks filled up with statements about who God was, I realized... I had gone to the scripture thinking 
I would find a promise that God would remove my suffering from me. That is not what I found. What I found is that God loves his people by being present with them in suffering. And I began to see, almost like a strand woven throughout all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that God loves his people by being with them. And that is something that he has promised from the beginning to the end. And we are going to walk through that promise. This is what you might call a biblical theology of the presence of God. And that's just when you trace a theme through the whole story of scripture. Because even, you know, if you pick up your Bible and you read it and you start on page one and you go through to the end, you're not necessarily going chronologically unless you buy a chronological Bible. Some of the books are overlaid and spliced together, but there is one big story of Scripture. And sometimes when we read it, sitting here in the 21st century in the United States, it's hard to read that story and see where we fit in and which promises actually apply to us as well. So what we're going to do is I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament in the next few minutes very, very quickly. Don't get scared. And we're going to look at that thread of God's promise that he gives to his people and how he keeps that promise, and how, we're going to see tomorrow, he continues to keep that promise, but in very, very different ways. And then in our last session tomorrow, how he is still keeping that promise to us today. These sessions are going to build upon each other, so please try to come to all three of them. They will make a lot of sense when I tie it up in our third session tomorrow. You do not have to turn anywhere tonight. I just want you to listen. Tomorrow we'll, we'll zoom in on a couple of texts if you have your Bible with you. But for now, I just want you to listen to this story. To understand the gift of God's presence to us, we have to go all the way back to the beginning to look at the way he promises presence and the way he keeps that promise. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that makes everyone scared that we're going to go really, really slowly. I'm seeing like 10 people check out. It's okay. God created everything, and everything he made was good. And then he created two people, Adam and Eve, and his creation of them he called very good because he created them in his image. And he set Adam and Eve in a garden, a paradise, where they had dominion over all the animals and they could eat of every tree except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you can eat of all the trees, but if you don't eat from that tree, because if you eat from that tree, you'll die. Adam and Eve had a close friendship with God. Moses tells us in the early chapters of Genesis that they walked in the garden with God in the cool of the day. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around what that would be like. But they had closeness. I mean, just pure access to God himself. They were friends with God. And then one day, the enemy of God, Satan, came into the garden in the form of a snake, and he said to Adam and Eve, you know, you can eat from this tree that he said not to, because, you know, did he really say you would die? Because what he actually means is, if you eat from it, you're going to be like him. And what he did in that moment was really, really tricky. He convinced Adam and Eve to question what God was telling them, to wonder if he was withholding something good from them. In saying no, was he keeping something from them that would make them better? We call believing that you need something else in addition to what God has given you, we call that idolatry. Worshiping something in addition to God himself. I mean, remember, they had full, unhindered access to God, their creator. They had this beautiful paradise garden. 
They wanted what they could not have. And so they ate from the tree and immediately knew that they had sinned. And they hid from God. God found them, not because he didn't know where they were. But he addressed their sin. And in true human fashion, they passed the blame. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the snake. And God cursed them. Adam, he cursed with... um, hard work, that he would work the land and it would be fruitless. He cursed Eve with pain and childbearing, and then he cursed the snake, and then he also said that someone would come one day to crush the head of the snake. And what we have in that very first part of Genesis is a glimmer of hope, because what happened with Adam and Eve and their sin was that the world broke in that moment, and from that moment that they disobeyed God, sin tainted everything. Even creation groans because of the brokenness of the sin that happened in what we call the fall here in the Garden of Eden. God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, And it was his kindness that he did so because there was another tree in the garden called the tree of life. And if they had eaten from that tree in the sinful state that they were in, they would have lived forever in sin. So he removed them from the garden. And from that point on, man lived, man sinned, and man died. Because the payment for sin is death. Because you cannot have a relationship like they had originally had with God. You cannot walk closely with God as a sinful person because he is holy. And there's a gap there between man and God caused by sin. As we move through the book of Genesis, you'll see people grappling with that sin in various different ways. You'll see the story of the Tower of Babel where man in his pride builds this tall tower to try to show God how great he is. And the Lord confuses their languages and makes them scatter across the earth. Then you have the the story of the flood where man was just sinning in the eyes of God, doing whatever he wanted, whatever he thought was right in his own heart. And God sent the flood. You know, you think of, uh, like, in our old church building, the church nursery used to have a mural of Noah's Ark on the wall. That always struck me as odd because that is a story of judgment. It's not a happy animal story. It is a story of judgment for sin. So really, we have one children's Bible where there's little bodies floating in the picture. I mean, but really, it should be. You know, it's a story of judgment. This was God judging sin. In Genesis chapter 12, Moses focuses in on one man, a man named Abram, who God eventually names Abraham. Now, this is a man who lived in a city of pagans. They worshipped idols. Abraham probably worshipped idols as well, just like his fathers before him. And God speaks to this man and says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. I'm going to be your God. I am going to bless you. He takes him outside to a sky full of stars, and he says, count them if you can. That is how numerous your offspring or your future generations, your descendants will be. And through you and your family, I'm going to bless the whole earth. This was a beautiful promise, and Abraham believed God. He believed him, but there was a problem because Abraham could not have any children. He and his his wife Sarah were old. But the Lord promised to give them a son, and in many, many, many years later, he did. And that son's name was Isaac. Isaac, um, God tells us in Genesis 26, um, verse 24, God promises Isaac sort of the same promise that he is going to keep throughout all of Isaac's family and his children and his children and his children. He says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And I just think, what would it have been like to have this God, who you don't really even know, speak to you and say, hey, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. I just want you to follow me. Isaac grew up, and he had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau, 
Jacob was a very deceitful man. He was kind of a scoundrel. If you read the book of Genesis, I just don't trust him. I think that he was just very deceitful. He was a liar, and yet somehow the Lord chose to set his affections upon him because God is good and we are not, but he is gracious, and he sets his love upon people who do not deserve it. And he was with with Jacob and took him through many different interesting and crazy scenarios, the story of the ladder, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. There are some crazy stories in Genesis. I'm just telling you, if you've just started your Bible reading plan for the year, you're probably with me on some of those starting in Genesis. There's some weird stuff in the book of Genesis. Um, Jacob grew up and he had 12 sons. And the last third of the book of Genesis really zeroes in on the life of one of those sons. Jacob had 12 sons. The younger two Joseph and Benjamin were his favorites, and you're really not supposed to have favorites of your children, and it never goes well when you do. These two younger sons were born from Jacob's wife that he loved the most. It's really weird when you read about polygamy in the book of Genesis. Jacob had four women that he took as wives and had all of these 12 sons with them. Just because scripture doesn't say that it was wrong doesn't mean that it wasn't wrong. When you read those stories about these men who had multiple wives and multiple children, there is so much family strife. Some of these kids murder each other. It's horrible. I mean, the stories of uh, in Genesis should be rated R in a lot of ways. Joseph and Benjamin are the youngest two of those 12 sons, and their father favored them, particularly Joseph. And he gave him this really expensive coat, and he really doted on him, and that did not go well with Joseph's brothers. Joseph also had this problem where he had all these dreams that his brothers were going to grow up and bow down to him. I am a middle child. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And if I grew up and told them that one day they were going to bow down to me, it would not have gone well in our household. Just really wouldn't have gone over well. His brothers hated it, and they hated him. And so they decided to kill him. Seems extreme. Um... One of the brothers speaks a little reason to the rest. He's like, look, we cannot kill him. Let's just throw him down into this pit. And he's thinking he's going to rescue him later. While he's away, the other brothers then sell him into slavery. And I'm, like, I read stories like this. And yes, I grew up reading them. They're very familiar. But, I mean, they sold their brother into slavery. What is that? So they sell him into slavery. He gets shipped off to Egypt as a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar. He works hard. Potiphar really likes him. Joseph is a young man at this point, and apparently he was attractive because Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, which is awkward, and he says no because he fears the Lord, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do this and bring shame upon your husband or you, and Potiphar's wife is, you know, a woman scorned, and so she accuses him of assault, so he is thrown into prison for something that he did not do, and he sits in prison for years. And there's a really interesting verse in Genesis 39. Joseph's in prison, and it says, The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And and he's sitting in prison. And you read this, and you're like, he's in prison for something he did not do after being betrayed by his family. How is God being good to him? How can being with him be a kindness What we see with Joseph, he's eventually pulled out of prison because he rightly interprets some dreams of some fellow prisoners. And the Pharaoh, the king over Egypt, is having these weird dreams and he needs someone to interpret them. Well, God gives Joseph the ability to rightly interpret the dreams, which really just means that they're about to experience a famine. 
and they need to prepare and store food for the famine. So Joseph's like, this is what's going to happen. This is what you need to do. Pharaoh is very pleased. So he puts him second in command of the whole kingdom. And for years, they store up food for the coming famine. So Joseph's living in Egypt. He gets married. He has kids. Living his life as a foreigner. And his brothers come looking for food because they're starving from the famine. And he's reunited with his brothers. And it's an interesting story of how they're reconciled. But what happens in that is an interesting statement. He says to them, what you meant for evil against me, God has meant for good. There was purpose in Joseph's suffering and rotting away in prison for years. God had raised him up for a purpose. And one of those purposes was to save a generation from starving to death, specifically one of his brothers, a brother named Judah. And Judah was important because the promise that God made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, he was going to make to Judah. It was through Judah's family that God was going to continue to keep a promise of blessing all the people of the earth through Abraham. Judah and the rest of the brothers move to Egypt. They live, they're reconciled with Joseph. Years go by, the This family of 12 brothers, they multiply and multiply and multiply until they're like a whole ethnic people group. And years go by until there's a new pharaoh in control. And he doesn't remember Joseph or the stories about Joseph or how he helped the previous pharaoh. And these people, Joseph's family, who scripture refers to as the Israelites or the Hebrews, become so numerous that in order to keep them in line, he enslaves them. And he keeps them as slaves, and they stay, these people, this group of people who we are going to refer to as Israel, remain in slavery for 400 years. 400 years is a long time. At the end of those 400 years, God raises up a young man named Moses, and he sends Moses to deliver his people from slavery. And here's what's interesting. Here's where we're really going to see God keeping his promise not only to bless the people of the earth through Abraham's family, but also to be with them the way that he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He raises up Moses. Moses goes to Egypt, tries to convince the Pharaoh to let this people go, He sends all these weird plagues like frogs and bugs and boils on their body and turning the water to blood and complete darkness. And every time Pharaoh thinks, you think he's going to relent, he changes his mind because his heart was hard and he wants to keep all the people as slaves until the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn son. So the thing with this one was, you're going to, um, God tells his people, you're going to kill a lamb, you're going to take the blood, you're going to put it on the doorpost of your house, then you're going to eat the meat and you're going to be ready to go. You're going to be dressed and ready to go. As long as you have the blood over the door of your house, then when I send my angel through the camp, your house will be spared. And every house that obeyed that command was spared. In every other house, the death of the firstborn child occurred including the house of Pharaoh. And this is the one that broke him. And so he said, get out. Not only did the people leave, they took all the goods and the riches from the Egyptians and they left. And God led them through with Moses and he promised he was going to take them to a land that was going to belong to them. As soon as they start to leave Egypt, they get to the Red Sea, a body of water that they cannot go around. And all of a sudden behind them comes Pharaoh's army because he's changed his mind. And so the only thing they can do is to go forward And God allows that by splitting the Red Sea in two. And they walk through on dry ground. This is a miraculous thing. And at this point, from what I have researched, you're talking 
upwards of a million people at this point. This is a large people group now, this family, that was the 12, 12 sons of Jacob are now like t- tribes of people. And they all walk through on dry ground, and as soon as they're done and Pharaoh's army is behind them, the water closes, defeating their enemies and saving them. And at that point, God shows up in a very visible way to assure them he has rescued them and he's going to lead them, and he is with them. And he does that by sort of manifesting or showing his presence. At night, it was this big column of fire that would guide them and be around them. During the day, it was a big column of smoke. And when they saw that, they knew that he was there. Why did God do this for them? We see why in Exodus 29, he made a promise, and this was his promise. I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God. And they will know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And here's why. And he says it again. So that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. He delivered them because he planned to be with them, to live among them. There was a problem, though. The Israelites had been living in Egypt for 400 years, really probably deeply ingrained in Egyptian life and culture. And so there probably was a really strong temptation to worship false gods like those of the Egyptians. Israel had seen God do wondrous things. They'd seen all the ten plagues in Egypt. They'd seen him deliver them. They'd seen the parting of this body of water and walking through on dry ground. They saw him defeat Pharaoh's army that had pursued them out of Egypt. They saw his presence by day and his presence by night. His presence meant something. And yet in their hearts was that problem that we saw back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve doubted that God was being true to them. Israel struggles with idolatry from this point forward. Even having witnessed all these amazing things, they struggle to believe that God's presence meant their good. And they they struggled to believe that he was enough for them. When they complained about food, he sent food. They still complained. When they complained about water, he sent water. And they still complained. They just couldn't trust that his presence was enough for them. He was in their midst, but they doubted that he was good. If they could have what they desired and him, then they would be happy. And that is what we also call idolatry. With all of these Israelites, newly freed from slavery, they needed to know who they were, now that they belong to the God who rescued them, and how to live. So God calls Moses up onto a mountain, and he's going to give them the law. And if you read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see very meticulous, what seems like rules for his people. But written into God's law, it seems very strict, but it was a protection for their hearts. It was to remind them of who he was and his holiness and his goodness, and to remind them of who they were and how they used to live until he rescued them. He's giving the law to Moses up on this mountain, down in the valley. The people are impatient. And they pile all their jewelry together, and they make a golden calf, and they bow down and worship it, even while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from God. This was their struggle. Their hearts were bent towards sin, bent towards being dissatisfied with the God who made them and the God who had rescued them. They're always thinking, I need, we need something else, we need something else. And when, as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see them trying to combine their worship of God with worship of false gods. 
So if they are trying to, you know, raise a crop, like they're farming, they're going to worship God, but they're also going to worship Asherah or Baal, one of the false gods or goddesses, to sort of hedge their bets. They just wanted to be sure in case God wasn't enough for them. However, God is still very committed to keeping his promise, and his promise is not contingent upon their faithfulness most of the time. He is faithful when they are faithless because, as we read just a moment ago in Exodus 29, his promise was to dwell with them and to be their God. So in his giving of the law, he tells Moses, I want you to build a place for my presence to dwell. So he instructs them to build a tabernacle, which is basically a really elaborate tent. And it's going to be put up in the midst of where they are camped because they don't have a place to live. They're all living in tents and sort of wandering around. And he says in Exodus 25, he says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. It's really interesting. And the, the instructions for the tabernacle are very specific from the carvings on the poles to the tassels that the priests would wear as they made sacrifices for sins. God was showing them his holiness and how he would meet their problem of sin with sacrifice and how he would promise to dwell with them. The tabernacle is built at the end of Exodus. And this is where God dwells. And if you read the book of Numbers, the way that the people would camp was you would have the tabernacle in the middle and then the priests, and then you would have sort of the 12 tribes representing all those people. You'd have their like leaders around that and then all the people. So what you had, even in this large group of people, was the tabernacle in the midst. And what you would see was God's presence in the form of smoke over the holy of holies, the holy part of the temple. So these people, just think about it, every day they could get up and physically see with their eyes the manifestation of God's presence with them. You want to think, if I was living back then, and I could see that with my own eyes, I would have no problem trusting him right? That's what we want to think. We want to think that we would have done better than the Israelites. The problem is, is that sin problem, which is the problem that we have. And what the Israelites were constantly struggling with was, again, pairing their worship of God with running after their heart's desires for other things. And anything that you think you need to believe that God loves you, whatever thing you need to add into that, I need God to do this for me to believe he really loves me, that's your golden calf, just like Israel. I think the stories of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we should see ourselves in them. We should see where their struggle to be true to the Lord who was with them at all times is our own struggle. Their struggle to want to worship him while also meeting all their earthly desires is also our struggle. We get to the book of Numbers, and Israel is going to get their own land to dwell in. They come out of Egypt. They have no place to live. God has promised a land. It's a land he's promised to Abraham. The Israelites send out 12 spies to scope out this land. And because it's very, it's, it's a big place. There's people that live there. They don't follow the Lord. They worship false idols, and they've got to send in spies to try to see what's going on. The spies come back. Ten of the twelve spies are like, this place is great, but we cannot go there because the people are numerous and large and they're powerful and we will not win. The other two spies, Caleb and Joshua, were like, look, the Lord said we're going to take the land. We're going to take the land. The issue was that God never told them to go spy out the land and then come back and give an opinion. 
They were going to take the land no matter what. That is what he had commanded them to do. It is what he had promised that he would give them. And so because of their unbelief, because the people believed the ten spies rather than the other two, the Lord said this generation will actually not enter the land at all, but your children will. And so for 40 years, the people wander in the wilderness. And it seems like a really harsh punishment. 40 years of not getting to go into this land. 40 years of wandering in a wilderness, of living in tents, of eating the same thing day after day after day, a whole generation. But what the Lord was doing, I think, was teaching these people how to be his people. They were teaching him to, they were teaching, he was teaching them to trust him every single day. So he provided a food called manna. It's like a wafer-like substance on the ground. It was there every morning that they woke up. Every morning. And the thing about the manna was you couldn't store it up. There was no hoarding of the manna because it would rot immediately. And I think what God is doing there is teaching them every day that you get up, you have to trust that I will be enough for you. And then the next day when you get up, you're going to have to trust that I will be enough for you. And the next day when you get up, you're going to have to trust that I will be enough for you. And this, this is the lesson we see him teaching Israel through these 40 years of wandering. If you go through some of the scriptures during that time, and we see it in some of the prophets as well, during those 40 years, nobody's clothing or shoes wore out. It's kind of a a miraculous thing that God did that's often overlooked in this story. They wore the same clothes for 40 years and they never wore out. I mean, I can wear a pair of heels for like a season and it's worn out, you know, like 40 years. No, I mean, that's miraculous. The Lord was caring for them. He provided the manna for them. When they complained about that, he provided quail for them. He provided meat for them. And so he always provided water when they needed it. He was teaching them to trust him. And what they would do is they would set up their camp. They'd have the tabernacle where his presence dwelled in the middle. And when the cloud settled over it, they had to stay put. And when the cloud went up, they had to pack up and move. And it was this lesson of when he moves, we move. When he moves, we move. And when he is still, we are still. There is a lesson here that he is teaching that I think that we can take from this as well. Daily dependence upon the Lord is not a bad thing. If it keeps you near his side, if it keeps you coming to him day in and day out in desperation, it might be a gift. The people of God do, after that generation, take the land that God has promised to them. Moses dies. He puts Joshua in charge to lead them. They settle the land. You can read the book of Joshua and read about the conquest. They settle this land, and they live there, and they start to build homes for themselves. And um, after Joshua dies, though, the people start to run after the false gods again. Their memory is so short. They start to worship the false gods, to hedge their bets, and they have this pattern. You can read this in the book of Judges. So what they do, they start to worship the false gods of all their neighbors. God sends some form of judgment, and then they cry out, and they're like, Lord, save us, and then he relents. They follow him for a little while, and then they start to run after the idols of their neighbors, and then the Lord sends some sort of judgment as punishment because he knows it will turn their hearts back to him, and then you repeat this cycle over and over, and if you were to think about the book of Judges like this, it's like a progressive downward spiral, and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and it is a tragedy. It is just steady moral decline. God sends judges to try to like speak some sense into the people and draw them back to him. Sometimes the judges were effective, and sometimes they weren't. 
the people of God still sought out idols made of wood and stone and gold. They sought to be filled by the things that their pagan neighbors were filled by. They sought satisfaction anywhere but from the God who created them, who freed them, who rescued them, who dwelled in their very midst. But God did not abandon them because he always keeps his promises. He lived in their midst. Now Judges ends with these words. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever he wanted. And they needed a rescuer. God raised up one last judge in that season. His name was Samuel. And he urged the people strongly to turn back to God, to the God who had saved them and freed them. All of that perpetual idol chasing kept them far from God. Under Samuel's leadership, they did confess their sin. They removed a lot of the the places where they worshipped false gods. But by the end of Samuel's life, they decided what they really needed was a king. All their pagan neighbors had kings, And this move to a monarchy in the Old Testament is a huge shift. God had promised way back in Genesis when we talked about Abraham, through him all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. And he said that someone from Abraham's family through that line of Judah was actually going to be a king and would be a king forever. Interesting promise. But Israel doesn't want a king because God made a promise about a king. Israel wants a king because they want to be like their neighbors. And they think a king will make them look strong make them look like they have a good defense. So God gives them a king, and he says to Samuel, look, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. So don't take this personally. They're doing the same thing to you that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. They have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. God always tells the truth about us. He just always does. So he sends them a king, and he gives them the king they deserve so much, he gives them Saul. I don't know if you've read much about King Saul, but I think he was a little unhinged. He was very prideful. Now, he was like really like strong appearance, looked like he would make a good king, but he was selfish and weak and unstable in his behavior sometimes. He disobeyed the Lord repeatedly. He disregarded the law about making sacrifices and the order of doing that and took things on his own. He was sort of the king that the people deserved, but in his wake, God gave them the king they needed, and he gave them David. David was everything that Saul was not. First of all, he was a descendant of the line of Judah, that brother of those 12 that God had promised to bless the earth through. David was mighty in battle. He was fair in judgment. He was loyal to God, and he ruled Israel for 40 years. He was not perfect, though. He had a weakness for women and sought to cover adultery with murder. His family would reap the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. But here's where David was different from Saul, and here's where when you read scripture and you see that David was called a man after God's own heart, when you look at his life, you think, how can that be so? Because he did commit adultery, and he did try to cover up his sin with murder. Here's where David was different, and this is, I think, important to God. David understood what sin was, and he called it sin, and he repented. And he actually repented very publicly, and we have many forms of his repentance in the Psalms. A lot of those Psalms are Psalms of lament about David's sin, specifically uh, Psalm 51, for example. God made a promise to David that um, his son, not David, but his son would build a permanent place for him to dwell. Israel had settled the land. Now they were a kingdom. They built a palace. David lived in a palace. But they were still worshiping God at the tabernacle in that temporary tent. So David thinks, let's build him a permanent place. God says, you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. So David's son Solomon is the one that God 
tells to build what we're going to call the temple. And this is a place where God's presence would continue to dwell. This is another way that they're going to enjoy God's presence and know that he is with them. God says to Solomon in 1 Kings 6, As for this temple you are building, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them, then I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people. So this here is a conditional promise, and it's not because the Lord wants to abandon them. It's because we're getting closer to a point in history where everything about how they experience his presence is going to change. Also, keep in mind Israel's proclivity to keep running after false gods and to worship idols. When the temple was built, God said this, I have consecrated this temple that you've built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. I mean, that's beautiful. And you would think Israel would be so here for this. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. I mean, is there anything more that we could need from the Lord than for his eyes and his heart to be with us? Solomon ruled Israel, and he's often considered a good king because he was wise. The Lord blessed him with success and wisdom. He was very blessed in his, like, what he physically owned as king, very wealthy. But he also had the problem that his father had, and he had a weakness for women, and he kept thousands of women as wives. His sexual sin led the people of God astray. The women that he was with were from other nations who worshipped other gods, and they turned his heart away from true God. Solomon had a divided heart and so did God's people. The problem was is that they had this temple, this permanent structure where God's presence would dwell and they felt like as long as that was there, they were okay. As long as God's there in the temple, then we can live how we want because he's there. You know, he's there. We'll live how we want. He'll keep us safe. Confidence in God's presence should never give us license to sin or to take his presence for granted. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, split God's kingdom into two groups because he was hard-hearted and dealing with the people. They rebelled. The kingdom split, and what you ended up with was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. A man called Jeroboam led the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam led the southern kingdom. I don't know why their names are so similar. I don't think they were related. But did these two kingdoms, and they lived completely separately. The northern kingdom of Israel totally perverted God's law, worshipped him in all the ways that were really close to the way that their pagan neighbors worshipped their gods. He let anyone who wanted to be a priest be one. It was, he completely disobeyed and dismantled the way of worship that God had given from the law. They came to a very quick end. Um, the southern kingdom of Judah had good kings, had bad kings. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to speak to them, to tell them to repent. Because we have this promise that he had made. As long as you obey my commands, I won't abandon you. As long as you obey my commands, I will be with you. And the people are just running after sin, after idols, after anything but God. Their hearts are just so hardened by their sin. As God is sending um, his prophets, we see him sending judgment. And when we get to the end of the Old Testament, what we have is the southern kingdom of Judah defeated by the nation from Babylon. They destroy the temple. They take God's people captive. And an entire generation grows up in captivity 
in Babylon. They were exiled for 70 years. Now, the people may have felt the absence of God's presence at this point, but the truth, the truth is that they had abandoned him long before. When I read these stories, when you get to this point where you see God's people disobey and disobey and disobey and disobey, and the Lord, you know, prompt, keeps his promises and keeps his promises, and then you see them incur judgment for their sins. I mean, I see that kind of same bent for self-gratification, for pursuit of my own dreams, for what I think will make me happy no matter what. I see that in my own heart. I see it in the hearts of friends. I see it in the heart of, like, my unsaved friends, people who don't know the Lord. I see them running after things that I know now as a believer in Jesus will never satisfy them, will never fill their hearts. When we read these stories of God's people, we should see ourselves in them. The question is, at this point, has God abandoned his people? Has he broken his promise of presence that he has kept up to this point? Because what we have here is people in captivity. Their Persian king eventually lets them go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But they never really recapture the rhythms of worship that they had before. They try, but their hearts aren't in it. We read in the prophets that they try to worship, but it's lip service in a lot of ways. They bring imperfect sacrifices to the temple. They keep intermarrying with pagan people and worshiping false gods. This is what got them in trouble in the first place. They live with hard hearts and injustice towards one another and especially towards the poor. True worship stems from the heart, and they continue to have a heart problem. The final words of the Old Testament are in the book of Malachi, and it's a promise from Malachi that someone was going to come. He calls him Elijah. He's referring to one of the previous and great prophets from the Old Testament. And he says that another Elijah is coming in anticipation of the day of the Lord. And these, this is where the Old Testament leaves off. And what we have there, it's just a couple of pages. Like if you flip between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, it's like two or three blank pages. But it's 400 years of silence from God. There were no more prophets. There were no more visions. There was no time where God is speaking out loud to someone like he did to Abraham. There's no cloud of fire or smoke. There's no splitting of a Red Sea. It's just silent. And you have to think, do God's people believe that he has abandoned them? Has God abandoned them? We're going to pick up tomorrow morning where God continues to keep his promise of presence in a very different way. But there are some things I want us to take as we just sort of very quickly have gone through the Old Testament, just hitting the high points, well, and the low points. I think what we should take for application, I'm going to build on this tomorrow, so hang with me. I think we need to see, just like Adam and Eve, and just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we were created to worship God and to be satisfied by him, to taste and see that he is good and that nothing satisfies like him. But we have this problem of sin that pulls our hearts away from him, pulls us to worship anything except him, and that is... You know, when you see a split allegiance in your heart, where you want to follow the Lord and you want to honor him with your life, but the pull of the world is so strong, and the things of this earth, the, you know, wealth, when we live in a very affluent nation, we pretty much have everything we need and everything we want. You know, the pull of money, the pull of things, maybe like me, you have like this this desperate need to fill that empty spot in your life that you assumed would be filled. Like maybe you're single and don't want to be. 
Maybe like me, you're infertile and you don't want to be. Maybe you, like me, also have illness and you want to be healed and you're not healed. And you spend your life almost idolizing these good things that we pray for. When you feel that split allegiance in your heart, thinking, I want to be happy in Jesus, but I really need him to do this in order for me to get there. It's the same thing as Satan in the garden saying to Adam and Eve, did God really say? It's questioning if God is true to you, if God is good to you. It's questioning if he has changed his character or he is withholding something good from you because he doesn't love you. But I am here to tell you, when you walk through the Old Testament, that's not what you see. What you see is a God who says, I love you, and I'm going to be with you. I love you, and I'm going to be with you. I love you, and I'm going to be with you. And you may run and run and run, but I am going to run after you. That is the God that I discovered back when I started with my spiral notebook, opening up to the book of Isaiah and saying, God, you need, I just need you to tell me who you are. This is what I saw, a God who, who doesn't always pull his people out of their suffering, but is in their suffering with them, who is really saying, come to me, come to me, I am everything that you need. This is who he is for his people over and over and over and over. Sometimes when God says no to things that we pray for, those longings of our heart, or, and, and these are, I'm going to talk more to this tomorrow, but good things, like desire for good things. It was never wrong for me to desire to have children. It's never wrong for me to desire to be healed from my diseases. But sometimes when God makes us wait, it's because like Israel in the desert, wandering around, he is teaching us to trust him, to get up every morning and believe him that he's going to give us what we need for that day to get up the next morning and believe him that he's going to give us what we need for that day. If I could give you one takeaway to walk away with tonight, if you are living with some sort of ongoing trial, and again, I'm going to speak a lot more to suffering tomorrow, but if you are living with some sort of ongoing hurt in your life, maybe a deferred hope, something that you have prayed for and longed for and God is continuously saying no, maybe you are grieving the loss of something or someone in your life, if those things make you question who God is to you, I want you to go home. I want you to get a spiral notebook. I want you to get a pen. And I want you to start in a book of the Bible. You could start with Isaiah. You could start with the Gospel of John. You could start with Genesis. And I want you to just go to the scriptures asking the one question, who are you, Lord? And let him tell you who he is, because I guarantee you, and this is what I learned from these years of doing this, is that rather than looking at my circumstances and letting them tell me who he was, I let him tell me who he was through his word, and that changed the way that I viewed my circumstances and changed the way that I could accept his no. I want you to let God, through his word, tell you who he is, Start at the beginning, go to the end if you want. Look for the way that he loves his people by being with him because his promise to Israel throughout the Old Testament is a promise we're going to discuss tomorrow that he continues to make to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And we're going to see that that is a promise that he has made to us. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for, um, for giving us a story that tells us who you are. I thank you for including parts that we can identify with. I thank you that this isn't the end of the story, that there is a really good middle coming next. I thank you, Lord, that all of the things that our hearts yearn and desire in this life can be found truly in you and what you have done for us through Jesus at the cross, as we're going to discuss tomorrow. Um, Lord, I thank you for the story of Scripture, which maybe is hard for us at times to relate to, but Lord, you have given it to us to teach us who you are so that we know how to live as people who belong to you. So I just pray for the ladies tonight as they think, as they go home tonight and rest. I just, I, Lord, I pray that they would, I don't know, but just really want to see who you are in your story, because this is your story. It's your work, book. It's your revelation of yourself. I pray, Lord, that they, they would love you for who you have revealed yourself to be to us in scripture and who you are is so, so good. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.